Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have an extended conversation with Ray Hederman from the Buckeye Institute here in Columbus about Ohio's economy. Courtesy of 10TV, Tracy Townsend talks about an issue that developed between President Trump and Ohio-based Goodyear. And Dom Tiberi reviews the high school fall sports situation as the pandemic continues. In about 40 minutes, Skip Mossick talks with Sherry Jenkins from First Tee of Central Ohio. That's an organization that uses golf to inspire youth. They have an event coming up tomorrow. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. First up on Columbus Perspective, Ray Hederman, who is the executive director of the Economic Research Center at the Buckeye Institute. How are you? I'm doing fine, Dave. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Buckeye Institute is. Yes, we're a nonprofit uh, educational institution, a think tank located in Columbus, Ohio, uh, who creates public policy solutions to make sure that Ohioans can prosper. And fair to say you lean conservative? Uh, We prefer free market solutions, so sometimes people call us right of center. Okay. And you uh, have been talking about the economy as we continue through this pandemic. What is your take on uh, how Ohio is doing overall? Yeah, so what we've seen is that Ohio started snapping back rapidly through the summer. We've seen a good increase in Ohioans returning to work. Uh, The labor report, though, that came out last week uh, indicated that our recovery is slowing a bit through July. Uh, As you know, we lost about a million jobs uh, very quickly due to the pandemic, and we've made up over half of that. So about uh, uh, we're still down about 400,000 jobs compared to where we were last year. Uh, So it's the third quarter. We still got a ways to go. Here we are late August. The July unemployment rate for Ohio was... uh 8.9% and the national rate 10.2. That was kind of surprising to me that we were below the national rate. Yeah, and so Ohio has actually weathered the storm a bit better compared to the national average. Uh, We've seen that Ohioans were returning to work more quickly. Uh, More Ohioans have been in the labor force. And, of course, as you pointed out, our unemployment rate is a lot lower than the national average. You know, one thing that does give me concern, though, is that the number of Ohioans looking for work fell precipitously in the last month. That's one of the reasons our unemployment rate fell because people who are out of work basically gave up and have left the labor force. And for us to have a full recovery, we need all these people to come back in the labor force and be able to find a good job. Do you get any sense that that might be sort of like the the Great Recession when older Americans near retirement just gave up on trying to get back into the workforce? Yeah, that's part of what we're seeing is that, again, you know, some of those people that are having trouble finding uh, work right now or they're unemployed or maybe their uh, unemployment went from temporary to a permanent uh, job loss, uh, they have dropped out of the labor force, which means they have not been looking for a job uh, for the next four weeks. And the longer people go without looking for work, oftentimes the harder it is to find that good job that they need. And there's a big concern that uh, – you could see uh, the unemployment rate you know, remain at elevated levels uh, uh, for an extended period of time, like we saw coming out of the Great Recession. Has this use of the $600 add-on uh, in unemployment benefits, which is now 300 from the federal government, I'm guessing that for an institution like the, like the Buckeye Institute, that really bothers you. 
Well, I think, you know, it's going to become a bigger uh, burden uh, and disrupted to the labor force the later we go on in recovery. And so what we've seen is that that has helped some people smooth uh, uh, their consumption. Uh, and, and quite frankly, and we think since the government mandated a lot of business shutdowns and mandated these layoffs, you know, the government needs to help people and provide a, a leg up. The problem is the longer these extended unemployment benefits go on, uh, the harder it can be for people to re-enter the labor force. You know, we've already heard from a lot of businesses saying that uh, it makes it harder for them to find workers uh, if they're getting paid more not to work than they are working. And, you know, that's what they found in Washington. When the Congressional Budget Office looked at that, they said the longer these extended unemployment benefits go, uh, the slower it will be for the labor force to get back to work. Because, again, some people are making more money from these benefits uh, than they would at their regular job. And it seems like that also might be uh, might contribute to the older uh, workers who are very near Social Security time, that that that's a nice bridge for them to get to Social Security if they're on unemployment. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you have people basically sitting there saying uh, we can take advantage of these benefits and then we don't have to worry about going back in the labor force right now. You know, we can get on to Medicare, Social Security. Uh, You know, and the the more you change the Medicare age, uh, uh, the more likely people are to go on and take an early retirement. Uh, The other thing that we have seen is uh, people going on disability. Uh, uh, So during the Great Recession, uh, we saw elevated amounts of people enrolling into disability benefits uh, so that way they could keep uh, more money coming in uh, without having to go back to the labor force. And the problem with that is, is that once people are on disability benefits, uh, the less likely they ever were to return to work. And, you know, having a job uh, is important for two reasons. One, it's not just your family income, obviously. You know, the the more you work, the more money you have. But two, we also know that there are good rewards uh, uh, psychically. And I think one thing we need to remember is that, you know, because the downturn, one of the, and the fact that people are social distancing and the economy has been shut down, we are seeing, you know, elevated rises in mental health, uh, 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 people suffering from mental health issues. And that's a concern as people drop out of the labor market that, you know, we can see some of these uh, bad uh, mental effects uh, taking, in, taking effect. Talking with Ray Hederman, he's the director of the Economic Research Center at the Buckeye Institute. It seems like the restaurant industry has really been hit hard in this, and and it it seems like it's going to be a tough way out for them. Yeah, absolutely. So the restaurant industry has been the industry most impacted. Uh, They lost about well over half their jobs uh, for the first few months, and they're still down about a quarter of employment, over 140,000 jobs compared to where they were last year. Uh, The good news is that, or or, or maybe the less bad news, is that, you know, the the state has taken bold steps to try to help the restaurant industry. Um, You know, they followed some of the ideas that uh, we came up here at Buckeye, you know, making sure that restaurants could open more easily for patio space, uh, allowing carry-out cocktails, you know, waiving some of those restrictions uh, to help restaurant and bars be able to meet the needs of their customers. And this is important because, you know, a lot of people are choosing not to go inside and sit down. So anything you can do to help restaurants uh, uh, with takeout food, be able to seat people outside, or again, carry out alcoholic beverages, uh, the better off this industry 
will be. But unfortunately, you know, again, the restaurant industry is continuing to suffer. Uh, some restaurants are already closing, and it, probably more will close in the future as people have decided they're not going to go to in-person restaurants or people basically aren't coming to urban areas and they're working remotely. And speaking of urban areas, I wanted to ask you about that. It seems like the office landscape, certainly it has changed dramatically. Is that a permanent change, do you think? Are we going to see office towers not used? people are looking at. Um, you know, the commercial uh, real estate industry, that's another industry that's been hard hit in job losses. And what we're seeing downtown uh, is parking lots are not full. Uh, uh, and so parking lot prices are coming down and people are definitely working uh, from their homes. Uh, we've seen a lot of companies, uh, like for example, Nationwide saying that they plan to uh, increasing the amount of uh, remote work in the future, uh, even after, you know, the pandemic ends. And so the question is, is this a temporary shift or going to be permanent? I think the evidence is that some of this remote work is going to become permanent. Uh, uh, How much of it uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, even if 10 percent of workers are now going to be working from their home, that's going to be a significant uh, change in how urban centers operate, uh, because that'll mean fewer customers downtown, uh, downward prices on real estate, and maybe a downward prices on uh, your tax base for urban areas. But I think, you know, what's happening is an ongoing trend has people shifting to remote work or maybe a hybrid when they come into the office a few days a week. Uh, Maybe this trend would have played out in 10, 15 years. Instead, it's been compressed into a matter of weeks. Could you see that lead to affordable housing in some of these empty office spaces? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people right now downtown are going to be looking at different uses for real estate and prices. Um, again, uh, you're seeing some commercial rents falling. Uh, as fewer people are downtown, you will start to see a downturn in uh, some of the real estate prices. Uh, you could also see, for example, uh, more space open up. Uh, for example, a lot of uh, malls, uh, some big box retailers, you know, people are buying online more and more. And so you're seeing seeing some uh, uh, for rent signs and vacancies going up in traditional bricks and mortar stores. And so again, when you have this type of openings and vacancies, you expect downward prices and you expect to see some people saying, you know what, we can turn this into mixed use uh, uh, type of condiments uh, where these type of apartment buildings uh, uh, become more available. And again, that'll make a downtown living cheaper. Uh, The other side is that Fewer people may want to live downtown. Um, they may not see the upward prices because some people might say, if I'm not comfortable going to a bar or restaurant, uh, maybe I prefer to live out in the suburbs with a yard as compared to a down, uh, downtown condominium. Talking with Ray Hederman from the Buckeye Institute. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. I have a concern for seniors who are on Social Security. They maybe have gotten through this easier than most because they didn't have a job to lose. They got the $1,200 stimulus check, and their pay hasn't changed, so they are arguably maybe doing better. But I feel like there's a reckoning coming with that when it comes to, you know, we've got property values increasing 20% in Franklin County, so there could be higher property taxes. And it seems like the government is ripe for changing some of the credits that seniors get on some tax issues in the future. 
Yeah, well, you know, you know I mean, a lot of the uh, uh, governments right now, both uh, state and federal governments, are going to be looking hard at ways that uh, they can save money. Uh, because, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, the federal government is obviously racking up a, a lot of debt uh, to pay for the stimulus checks, to pay for the benefits, uh, you know, basically trillion-dollar uh, uh, stimulus bills. And so at some point, you know, the, uh, uh, the spending has to end, and they're going to be taking a look and seeing how can they uh, maybe raise more revenue. And that could basically take the place of different types of tax increases, getting rid of some tax credits, uh, paring down other types of spending benefits. Uh, I think the bigger concern probably for seniors uh, is basically health um, and making sure that, you know, they can be able to see a health care doctor of their choice uh, without fear of contracting COVID. And I think Ohio has uh, uh, done some pretty innovative things in being able to allow seniors to see uh, teledoctors, uh, tele medicine, for example. So one of the big shifts we've uh, uh, seen is people going to seeing their doctor on their iPhone or on their digital device on a tablet as compared to seeing a doctor in person. And that is going to be, again, another significant economic shift as I think a lot of these virtual doctor visits will uh, uh, remain in practice even after people, uh, even after the pandemic ends. Do you see uh, city income tax rates rise or credits? You know, if you if you live in a suburb and work in Columbus, uh, oftentimes most suburbs in the area will give you a credit on the city you live in. But might those be evaporating in the future? Well, you know, the uh, Ohio legislature uh, basically passed a bill saying that you should keep paying taxes uh, uh, to where you've traditionally worked. Um, but I think, you know, part of it is as the pandemic has gone on for a period of months and people basically are not going back downtown, uh, maybe it could be uh, some people may not be downtown until next calendar year, uh, that's simply not sustainable. And, you know, people should be paying taxes to kind of where they're actually working as compared to where they're theoretically going to work. So I think a lot of urban areas are going to be very concerned about their tax base uh, uh, shifting out to the suburbs. Uh, on the other hand, you know, for around Columbus, if you're out there in Westerville, you know, you're in Gahanna, you could be looking at a surge of tax revenue, uh, uh, which is needed because a lot of people uh, all of a sudden are going to be working from home. And so you're going to have different uh, traffic patterns. Uh, you may have increased demand on emergency services uh, because, again, instead of people being downtown. Uh, people are going to be uh, remaining in their suburbs. And so that's going to put a little bit more different pressure on some of those city services uh, to make sure that instead of just uh, serving people, you know, early in the mornings or late at night, they're going to have to be available during the workday. Is that an issue that's going to have to be settled in the state legislature or are cities maybe going to start coming after each other legally over this stuff? Institute, uh, we have actually filed a suit uh, uh, against the city of Columbus uh, on this very issue, saying that you cannot tax people who are not working downtown. Uh, we have some employees that basically have not been downtown in, in, in almost a half a year, and so the question is, why are they paying taxes to the city of Columbus? Uh, so we've seen other lawsuits that are uh, being filed as well, and, uh, and so my guess is there's going to be a, a fight both in the state house. 
Uh, we've already seen uh, legislation filed to, to basically say that taxpayers should only pay taxes where they're working, um, and, and, and court cases filed as well. So this is going to be a, an ongoing issue, uh, which stems from the fact that you know uh, Ohio has basically a very complex municipal tax system, uh, uh, which you know basically has been a, a problem for entrepreneurs and, and people with small businesses who do business in multiple uh, different jurisdictions. So this is going to be a issue that's going to be uh, decided in court and also in the state house. And from what I understand, a lot of states, their cities don't rely on the income tax like we do here. I mean, a lot of states basically have sales tax or property taxes, or, you know, you have different, or you get full credits. Uh, Ohio has a very complex uh, tax system where municipalities can impose different rates and really different tax rules on taxpayers. So if you're a small business person, and let's say, for example, uh, you're anywhere from in the summer, let's say you do pool cleaning or you're a plumber, you know, you're having to figure out how to pay taxes in, a, in many different suburbs of Columbus. Columbus, where you might get one credit in uh, uh, basically Pickerton, and you may get a very different credit in Lancaster or Westerville or Grove City. And that can become a real impediment for businesses uh, trying to grow and expand because you're having to deal with a different accounting system, and you actually have to start hiring professionals to do your taxes if you're working in many different municipal uh, jurisdictions. Talking with Ray Hederman from the Buckeye Institute, your liberal counterpart, Policy Matters Ohio, lately has been focusing on the need for Congress to approve uh, help, financial help for state and local governments, combined with what they say has been a real reduction in funding from the state to state and local governments, kind of a double whammy for local governments. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, uh, just uh, this week uh, we saw that the Ohio Controlling Board sent a, a hundreds of millions of dollars more uh, back to state and local governments, and this is again from the CARES package from the federal government. And there's still more to go, and so we've actually seen that Ohio still has a few hundred million dollars, uh, about 680 million dollars of funds that they could distribute back to local governments. And so I think uh, you know one of the things that our concern is uh, that the federal government government is shoveling out so much money that it's going to create a bad incentive for, uh, for states and localities. So just like families are having to sit there and kind of think through, uh, uh, are we making the best use of our dollars? It's important that the governments do the same thing, that you know they take a look at cutting spending first before they go out and say, we need to spend more money. Because you know loans from the federal government, loans from the states are loans. And eventually, you're going to have to pay higher taxes, or they're going to be cutting core services to make up for this. And so I think one of the things is, let's spend the amount of money that Ohio already has in the CARES Act. Let's see where local governments are uh, before we call for a more uh, deficit spending at the federal government level. And finally, I think it's important to realize that right now, tax revenues in Ohio, uh, we're doing better than the state expected. Uh, we're seeing people continue to spend. We're seeing income taxes up. So the first uh, financial tax statement we got last July uh, showed that our tax shortfall is not nearly as much as people expected. And so, again, more evidence that it doesn't make sense right now to call on the federal government to be shoveling out a lot more uh, deficit finance tax dollars uh, to local governments. Uh, it will be key going forward to see if the sales tax revenue uh, keeps up uh, in August or this is 
is kind of how much of this was just elevated uh, because people have been thinking about a big purchase uh, and finally went out and did it once they felt comfortable leaving their house. So, you know, making sure that we have a, a reasonable amount of, you know, kind of continued tax flow uh, is important because right now I think, you know, Ohio has not taxed tapped into our rainy day fund. You know, Governor DeWine uh, made some uh, smart decisions early last spring, reining in some state spending instituted state hiring freeze. So comparatively speaking, Ohio's in much better shape uh, than a lot of our neighbors when it comes to having uh, tax dollars in the bank and being able to weather a small downturn. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Ray Hederman. He's the executive director of the Economic Research Center at the Buckeye Institute. You mentioned the governor, and I wanted to ask you about that. There's some House members on the Republican side who want him out of office, and he may arguably be more popular among Democrats than Republicans in Ohio. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Governor DeWine, uh, the last time I saw his polls, was very popular uh, early on. I think, uh, uh, of course, the state could have done uh, uh, some things better, including being a lot more transparent uh, with the data we were looking at in terms of deciding uh, when the state was shut down. But if you look at our neighbors, um, uh, fewer Ohioans have died uh, due to COVID, and uh, Ohio has not uh, seen nearly uh, the draconian shutdowns as a state like Michigan or Pennsylvania. Um, and, and that has a real impact on Ohio businesses. And so we have seen a lot of people from out of state uh, where the shutdowns are more drastic coming into Ohio to uh, make their purchases. And that helped those economic uh, centers that are in the border, particularly, again, in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. So I think, you know, most Ohioans think that uh, Governor DeWine has done a pretty good job in protecting lives and helping uh, protect the Ohio economy. Um, From our perspective, I think that uh, Governor DeWine, by cutting spending so early, has helped position the state uh, to weather the downturn better than some of our uh, counterparts. And again, I think Ohio is more open right now in terms for economic activity, for people to go to restaurants compared to other states. So uh, uh, if you take a look, I think that's one of the reasons that we have not seen uh, some of the anger uh, in the same magnitude has compared to states surrounding Ohio that have had a more draconian lockdown. We hear people talking about how Sweden may be one of the most uh, successful in the way that they've dealt with the pandemic, but they've got fewer people than Ohio and nearly twice as many deaths as Ohio. I I know that there's arguments that perhaps they're uh, ahead of the game with herd immunity and things like that, but there's so many different layers of arguing about all this stuff that sometimes maybe the death number has to count for something. Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, if you, you know, Ohio, despite having a much larger population than Indiana, we have about the same number of deaths. And, you know, I think it's important that, uh, uh, to acknowledge by basically locking down Ohio earlier, canceling the Arnold here in Columbus, that, you know, Governor DeWine really helped to prevent the sharp spike in COVID uh, during the spring that led to a lot of the deaths that we have seen in New York City and Michigan. 
Uh, the other thing I think that Ohio did really well was freeing up uh, the Ohio medical system to be able to treat the disease. Um, you know, we basically have less in the re uh, regulations regarding telemedicine, and we've seen a lot of people now being able to see their doctor on, on their cell phone. Uh, we allowed uh, doctors, um, we're still allowing doctors and medical professionals from other states to come in and, and treat uh, Ohioans uh, if there's a strong need. So, for example, when there was a surge down in uh, Cincinnati, if doctors from Kentucky or nurses from Kentucky were needed, we made it easier for them to come into Ohio to be able to uh, treat COVID patients. So, you know, our uh, Ohio's response hasn't been nearly perfect, but I think, you know, compared to some other states, it's put us in a good position where we haven't seen the economic harm, and thankfully, we haven't seen nearly the deaths as some of our neighbors. So last thing, Ray, aside from uh, ebbs and flows with uh, the coronavirus uh, and maybe a lot of unknowns when it comes to heading into flu season and such, if there is a vaccine at some point fairly soon around the corner, do you see the worst of all this being over economically and with the stock market and all that? I think that that'll be a big help, uh, assuming we, we, we get a vaccine quickly. But I think, you know, we are going to need to see uh, probably some better policies uh, of the states to help out businesses because, I, you know, the data from last month showed that some of these temporary layoffs uh, have unfortunately become permanent. Uh, again, a lot of, uh, if you think about a lot of restaurants and bars that may have temporarily shut down are now becoming permanently closed. Uh, with no Ohio State football this fall, uh, that's going to be a, a big hit to everybody from, you know, bars to basically people who sell Ohio State merchandise, you know, people who depend on uh, hundreds of thousands of people getting excited for game day. That's a lot of uh, basically money that's not going to come into those businesses. And we may see, unfortunately, a lot of these businesses simply not being able to survive, uh, which means that we're probably going to see some unfortunate, uh, 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 you know, the economy not fully recovering uh, right after a vaccine, uh, but things will get better. It's amazing how quickly things can change, but as we've seen in the past, how much an economy can evolve to, to try to make amends for it. Yeah, you know, and I think it's a, you know, the economy was growing so well, and it's just amazing that, you know, Ohio had a state surplus uh, before the uh, pandemic, and we basically went from a, a robust surplus to a shortfall uh, in a matter of months. And, you know, this has been an unprecedented uh, uh, experience for many of us in our lifetimes. And so taking a look at lessons learned, and I think, you know, some of the uh, reforms at the state level uh, need to be made permanent. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of stuff that's been enacted on a temporary basis, but making some of these permanent, I think, can go a long way to helping protect Ohioans' health, uh, such as the telehealth reforms, and can help businesses, uh, again, such as helping uh, restaurants and bars, you know, have more flexibility in how they operate. Making those reforms permanent can not only protect businesses that are existing now, but set them up better for the future and help new businesses occur. Ray Hederman, Executive Director of the Economic Research Center at the Buckeye Institute. Ray, where can people find your policy positions online? We are at the BuckeyeInstitute.org, and we have actually a website. If you come and you take a look at the Buckeye Institute, you'll see we call it Policies for the Pandemic, where we write a whole bunch of different uh, uh, articles, everything from small business relief to health care relief to uh, our calls for education reform. And so... Come take a look at that, and you can see all our suggestions we have on how Ohio can uh, uh, survive and come out stronger at the other side of this pandemic. 
All right, good stuff. Uh, Ray Hederman again with the Buckeye Institute. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. President Trump called for a boycott of Goodyear tires. This comes after Goodyear reportedly told employees they could not wear Make America Great Again or Blue Lives Matter attire. I'm not happy with Goodyear because what they're doing is playing politics. And the funny thing is the people that work for Goodyear, I can guarantee you I poll very well with all of those great workers in Goodyear. A day after that statement. People gathered in Akron to support the Ohio-based company. Congressman Tim Ryan and House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes were at the rally and both say enough is enough. Not only are you attacking the workers at Goodyear, you are attacking our entire community. And let me tell you something. If you attack this community, you have to answer to me and you have to answer to all of these other people standing with me. Akron Mayor Dan Horgan also spoke at that rally. He called President Trump's comments, quote, an attack on Akron. And Democratic state lawmakers are calling for an apology from President Trump for what they say is an attack on Akron area jobs by calling for that boycott on Goodyear. The group, which includes Ohio House Minority Leader Sykes, Senator Vernon Sykes and Representatives Tavia Golonsky and Casey Weinstein, sent a letter to the president about his call for that boycott. Because remember, the company is based in Akron and employs about 62,000 people. Their statement, their letter says, this is a time when we must come together as Americans to support American-made products and our heartland industries. This boycott you are calling for is unwarranted, childish, and quite frankly, a distraction from the myriad of issues facing our country today. Our president should be an advocate for all business and not just an advocate for what he perceives to be his political interests. Again, that's a statement from some Ohio Democrats there. Congressman Steve Stivers, who represents Ohio's 15th district, has hosted an annual job fair for the past nine years. Well, now he says COVID-19 is causing him to cancel this year. Instead, they're canceling the in-person and taking this 10th annual event virtual. We already have about 25 employers with uh, 2,000 open positions, everything from a part-time position for somebody that doesn't even have a high school degree to positions that might require a PhD. We've got big employers like Huntington Bank, Cardinal Health. We've got a lot of small employers as well. It's going to be a really exciting opportunity for people looking for a job to either find a job or find a better job. That virtual job fair is on September 8th. It runs from 10 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. You do need to pre-register and confirm, in fact, that you live in the 15th Congressional District. You'll find a link at how to do all of that at 10tv.com. The U.S. Postal Service came under intense scrutiny, along with the new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. We've had our Verify team take a look at some of the claims about him. Here's Jason Puckett. 
The Verify team did some background on General DeJoy. In May this year, DeJoy was elected as Postmaster General by the USPS Board of Governors. That's six men who were all appointed by President Trump. Now, DeJoy is unique as the first Postmaster General in 20 years who was appointed from the private sector, not from within the USPS. So to the claim that he's a major donor for President Trump, that's true. FEC documents show that DeJoy donated more than $1.2 million to the Trump campaign from August 2016 till today. Which brings us to claims about DeJoy's investments. Posts like these say DeJoy holds up to $70 million in companies that directly compete or contract with the United States Postal Service. That is also true, but needs a bit of context. DeJoy's wife, Aldona Wose, sent this letter to a White House legal advisor in January. She's being considered right now for the role of ambassador to Canada, and she sent a list of the family's financial assets for transparency. Among them, between 30 and $70 million worth of assets in UPS, J.B. Hunt Transport Services, and XPO Logistics, all of which compete with or contract with the United States Postal Service. Now, the context here, DeJoy and his wife have talked about divesting themselves from these assets. We don't know how much of that has happened in the last eight months. If you've got other questions like these you want us to look into, send us an email. With your Verify, I'm Jason Puckett. Now, if you plan to vote absentee by mail in Ohio, there are a few dates you need to remember. First, Labor Day. That's when absentee ballot applications will go out. But you can request a ballot sooner. Make sure to mail your ballot request before October 27th. Ballots must be postmarked by November 2nd. You can also drop your ballot off on Election Day at your county board of election location. A big concern with voting in person is will there be enough masks for poll workers? Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose partnered with a PPE company to give masks to election workers and voters. RB Sigma LLC will donate more than 463,000 surgical masks. Because of the statewide mandate, you must wear a mask to vote in person this November. The masks will be delivered to every county board of election starting August 28th. I've been telling voters that, you know, when you show up at your at your voting location on uh, Tuesday, November 3rd, you're going to see a smiling face there to greet you. You just won't see them smiling. 35,000 poll workers are needed for Election Day. To sign up, head to 10tv.com slash featured links. That's where you will find a link to the application. Governor Mike DeWine has officially signed the state's order allowing sports this fall. The order also addresses fans at sporting events. Now, according to this order, there are allowed to be up to 1,500 spectators or 15 percent of an outdoor venue's capacity, whichever is less. For indoor venues, it's either 15 percent capacity or 300 spectators, again, whichever is less. The order says the primary purpose for allowing spectators is so that family members are able to watch. And it's really been a big week for high school athletes. Now that sports are officially allowed, they are ready to roll on with the season. 10TV's Dom Tiberi shows us what we can expect. The Rocks of Dublin Kaufman are hard at work getting ready for the upcoming season. The governor has given the go-ahead for all sports, including football, to compete this fall. Now we can say, we can definitively say that our season is going to start. And uh, we're going to go and, and we're going to do the best we can. Our kids are incredibly excited, as all, you know, all the kids that are going to play throughout Ohio. And, um, you know, our, we're going to be like everyone else. We can't wait. There are a total of seven fall sports, including golf, 
tennis, volleyball, cross country, soccer, field hockey, and football. These sports will be allowed to compete in the fall. But this is a fluid situation. And for school districts that might want to push their seasons to the spring, that remains a possibility. A new development, um, as you mentioned, and uh, we'll continue to work with those schools and our board of directors on the next steps for that. But for the majority of the school districts, they will compete in the fall. But football is the only sport that will have an adjusted schedule. The season start on August 28th, allowing teams to play up to six regular season games. The playoffs would begin on October 9th and would be open to every team including teams that did not play any regular season games. If a school district says we're not going to play football until October 1st, well, their first game could be in the playoffs. Um, we, we hope that they get a few games in before that, of course. But um, that's kind of one of the win-win scenarios with this new plan is that if, if a school district has said we're not going to play until then, well, that school can still get in the playoffs. Under the governor's order, tickets to games should be prioritized for family members and individuals very close to the athletes. The important thing to remember is that the kids get to compete. I don't think anybody can complain about that. I mean, it's an unfortunate thing that a lot of people, a lot of fans can't come and, and, and support their team. But, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, with what we're dealing with, we're, we're, I guess, very fortunate and lucky to be able to play. And just because the governor has given the go-ahead, that does not mean this is time to let up. Being smart and safe will be key going forward. If our student-athletes want as full a season as they possibly can have, they have to continue to do all these safety measures that they've been doing all summer. That doesn't stop. Uh, we have to continue doing that to have as much of a season as possible. And we thank Dom Tiberi for that report. In order for teams to win on the field, they must play by more than the rules governing the games. 10TV's Kevin Landers explains what school districts are required to do to ensure their teams remain eligible to play. Under the governor's order that allows fall sports to proceed, there are a few things that must happen before those sports can continue. A parent or volunteer must help to ensure social distancing for younger athletes. Among spectators, families must be seated at least six feet from another family or household group. No congregating before or after games. No high fives or huddles. One person from the home team is designated to make sure the governor's orders are followed, and the local health department can do its own inspections as well. Lieutenant Governor John Houston warned schools who don't follow the rules. If you care about your student athlete out there, that if you don't follow the rules, the Ohio High School Athletic Association has the ability uh, and reserves the right to um, cause a forfeiture of the game, uh, disqualify a team for, from, from participating. Schools that don't play football in the fall do have an option to play in the spring. The governor made clear the decision to have fall sports is between the school district and the parent. Reporting from the State House, Kevin Landers, 10TV News. We thank you for being with us this morning. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Here's Skip Mossick. We head next to Black Lick Woods, home of the first tee of Central Ohio. Sherry Jenkins is executive director. Sherry, good morning. Thanks for your time. For people who don't know, 
Tell us about the First Tee program and all that it does. Sure. So we are a youth development program. Um, we are teaching kids the game of golf, um, which is really kind of the side thing we do. It's the hook. It's not all about the golf. Um, we are developing life skills and leadership skills in youth. Um, our curriculum incorporates golf skills, but we also incorporate nine core values like integrity, sportsmanship, uh, perseverance, confidence, judgment. For us, it's not just about the golf. You know, today, especially in this world, our kids need support in dealing with life challenges. They need a go-to team. They need a safe place. And we provide that for kids. Um, our goal is to build character and confidence. You know, in our programs, kids come out, they're learning golf, but at the same time, every lesson involves a core value, and golf is the perfect platform for that. There's no referee. There's no umpire out there. You're calling penalties on yourself. You're keeping your own score. So honesty, integrity, responsibility, taking care of the golf course, it's the perfect classroom for teaching those skills. So we're developing strong core values. We're encouraging kids to ask questions, to challenge themselves. Um, and ultimately our goal is for them to learn great life skills, like how to manage their emotions, how to set goals. What's the difference between a dream and a goal and how do you work to achieve that goal? And also resolving conflicts, lots of social and emotional skills that we really believe empower kids to make good choices in their lives and to ultimately succeed. You know, we're, we're developing future leaders and they're learning a sport that they can play their entire life. You know, we all have, we all know people who didn't start playing golf until later in life. Um, so you can learn it later. You can play it well into old <laughs> age. Um, and from a competitive side, one of the things that I love about golf is the game is as competitive as you want it to be. It can be a beautiful, relaxing walk um, outside, or you can really challenge yourself. You can play on a competitive team. And we provide both of those opportunities for kids. We, we offer PGA Junior Golf League, um, where kids can compete against other teams throughout the community and have an opportunity to play other golf courses as well. We're visiting with Sherry Jenkins, Executive Director of the First Tee of Central Ohio, Tee to Green here on The Fan. Sherry, how has the pandemic affected what you do and how you do it? Well, you know, it, it affected us greatly in the spring. You know, we are all about, you know, being face-to-face with kids. And when um, everything shut down, it, it you know, kind of threw a curveball at us. We partner with several other youth outreach programs, but we're also in Columbus City Schools, Pickerington Schools, um, in their PE classes. So we send a coach in and we program side by side with a PE teacher. And when schools shut down in the spring, um, those programs stopped. We had to postpone our on-site spring program and, and, you know, we, we had to rethink what we did. We reinvented it. So we determined we could do virtual programming. Uh, we could put together a Zoom class, and the kids could be on there, um, get some golf skill instruction that they could do at home. You know, one of, one of the things that's important to us is that every child have an opportunity to participate, and they don't need to have golf equipment. So we put together golf packs, which included – you know, clubs and um, 
safe golf balls that kids could use at home and parents either could come and pick those up or we delivered them to quite a few families and provided programming online. And so kids could watch our coaches, then go and practice in the backyard and then get back together online and hang out with their friends and uh, keep keep that instruction going. You know, Sherry, we've talked about this for years, that there might be a mindset out there that the first tee is only set up for a certain demographic. And while it is set up for that, kids from all backgrounds can benefit from the first tee. I guess how challenging is it to get that message out sometimes? Sure. Some people will say, well, why do you feel like every kid needs to learn to play golf? Every child does not need to learn to play golf, but every child deserves an opportunity. I say all the time, every child has potential, but not every child has opportunities. So our goal is to provide opportunity for them to maybe try a sport um, that they would not normally have the opportunity to try. But most importantly, it's about kind of creating a safe place where kids can be a go-to team with mentors and coaches that show up for them, that are there for them, they build a relationship with, um, and and learn, like I said, life skills. That's the important thing. I think of our core values and, and these life skills as tools that kids can carry all through life in their toolbox. And when life comes at them and challenges come their way, they have a resource, whether it's a coach that they can reach out to, a mentor, or they understand what responsibility means. They understand what courtesy means and how to demonstrate it, how to apply it in their life, how to use it to make good choices. Every child needs that. Um, And our programs are available to everyone. There is a fee involved. And if, a, you know, to register for a class and if a parent can't afford that, then we're going to provide financial assistance. Um, we never want background golf skill or ability to pay to be an obstacle in participating in any of our programs. Again, the first tee of Central Ohio is housed out at Blacklick Woods out on the east side of Columbus. Speaking of funds that you were referring to, a very important golf outing up and coming, Live the Nine golf outing. Love the name, by the way. That's really what you guys stand for coming up August 31st at Oak Haven. Tell everybody about it. Yeah, so this is just a fun um, golf tournament. It's a scramble format. It's open for everyone. Um, we even encourage kids to come and participate. Um, and we we use this event to raise money so that kids can come and participate in our program. That's what this is for. And, you know, there are so many sports and activities that we can't do right now because of, um, you know, COVID-19. Being outside on a golf course and social distancing, golf and golf outings are perfect for this. So we encourage everyone, you know, to come out and participate. To learn more, you can go to our website, which is firsttcentralohio.org, and register for the event. It's $125 a person. Um, Dinner is included. We're really excited to have City Barbecue sponsor our dinner this year. Um, So come and join us. It's a lot of fun. Sherry, last thing for you. I know the first tee has had an involvement with the Memorial Tournament for many years. It had to be really disappointing for the kids not to be able to experience that this year. But what I guess fingers just crossed for 21, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a great partnership with the Memorial Tournament. They support our programs in schools and also provide us the opportunity to bring about 100 kids every year to experience the Memorial Tournament. And we were so disappointed, but 
you know, I really respect the decision that they made to put the safety of the community first. I know that was a tough decision for them. And yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed for next year. Sherry Jenkins, we're a big fan of what you and everybody out there at the First Tee of Central Ohio do. Best of luck with your upcoming Live the Nine outing August 31st at Oak Haven. One more time, that web address for more information. It is First Tee centralohio.org that is sherry jenkins executive director of the first t of central ohio sherry we appreciate your time all the best with your upcoming event okay hey thanks skip have a great rest of the day you can also find out more about first t of central ohio's event tomorrow at live the nine.com that's n-i-n-e live the nine.com columbus perspective is a public affairs presentation of wbns radio the opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of wbns radio its staff management or sponsors this is columbus perspective on the fan hi this is dave james joining me on the phone i think in columbus is uh dwayne casaris he's the ceo of directions for youth and families how you doing dwayne I'm fine. You don't need to know where I'm at. There's stalking laws, Dave, <laughs> even during this COVID time. Well, well, I'm out in the suburbs, and if you're in town, then I, you're probably safe. Okay. All right. Cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> you ain't traveling anywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What is Directions for Youth and Families? Um, it's pretty vacant here right now. <laughs> what it is. We're, uh, uh, actually, many of our folks are working from home. Actually, the majority still are. Uh, we're a social service agency. Um, we uh, offer counseling and case management services and, and ran two after-school centers. Uh, right now, all of our counseling, um, we serve about 6,000 kids a year in the Columbus area, kids and families. Our, all of our services right now are telehealth. Um, we are starting to inch back into the community, um, doing some face-to-face contact. Very safely, though, it's got to be outdoors. We carry those pool noodles because sometimes little kids don't understand what six feet of social distancing is, um, certainly mask and, and things like that. Uh, so we probably about 35% of our staff have uh, uh, um, taken the challenge of moving back in the community. It's interesting. It's, the, it's our therapists who are in our, our trauma programs that want to get back out there um, so that they could see their clients face-to-face. We have always gone to the client's home. Uh, we do not do office space. And, um, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to them. They're, they're, you know, they're concerned about, you know, some of the kids who are stuck in environments that aren't necessarily the best environments or the most supportive or the healthiest or that put them at risk. So um, they're the ones who wanted to go back out first. So we're, we're doing it gradual. Our after-school centers had to close, uh, but we turned those into food distribution centers. Um, we continue to do that. We offer uh, um, all through the summer five hours of uh, video programming and the arts and dance and music and leadership development and fitness and, and all those centering and balancing things. Um, we will, as we head into the school year, offer uh, free tutoring and homework help um, if people want to sign up for that um, on, on a virtual basis as well. So like everyone else, we have adjusted. Um, I've been fortunate. We've kept every employed uh, and so I still have my full uh, army of people out there in the community trying to be supportive uh, to those that we serve we're surrounded by a community of change I think um, I find it interesting because I think the longer we go um, 
almost like the heavier it is becoming on many different people. If um, you look at issues like depression, anxiety, all these types of things, um, and then isolation on top of all of that, uh, it can put people more at risk. So uh, that's a heavy concern. Um, self-care is critical. Uh, and, but many of the things that we used to use before for self-care aren't accessible anymore or they're limiting. Um, so we almost have to evolve from that and find new things to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Well, even in this uh, day of social distancing where, you know, if everybody's doing what they should be doing, we're having far less contact with people. And yet we've got unbelievable civil unrest uh, going on across the country. We've got racial inequities. We've got violent crime that is up more than 20 percent in Ohio's major cities. And this is something happening across the country is being pent up part of what's causing all this or what? You know, when I look at, at the whole issue of racial injustices, I mean, that's been around for a long time. So um, it's just now coming to the, the forefront and being addressed. So, um, you know, and, and I've talked to other people about this. And as an agency, um, we've always been about justice for everyone. We, we, we have always addressed uh, racial inequality. So um, it's just part of what we do as an agency. It's part of what we do as a profession uh, of social workers and counselors. Um, it's the stuff that we have to deal with. So um, I think the isolation, uh, it's interesting that these are coming together. Uh, the other part of that thing, I think the isolation part just adds another stressor to the whole thing uh, on top of the whole racial inequality. But, um, you know, we have Columbus that, that uh, 170 CEOs signed a, a document that said, you know, racism is a public health crisis. And I always think those things are fine. I mean, it's great to come out and say that. I think what you do after that is what counts. You, you know, anybody can sign something. Um, what are you going to do about it? There, there needs to be some action behind it. There has to be a behavior uh, that follows that. You, you can't just put it on a paper and then say, there, I did it, uh, for it to be meaningful. One of the big changes that seems to be happening, and unfortunately this is also something that divides the country, is you know we went from uh, the Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem to now, the day we record this, the NBA is actually, the, some of the players are talking about wanting to cancel the playoffs because because this kind of stuff is more important to focus on. Yeah, and you can certainly understand it, and, and particularly when you look at uh, leagues that have uh, a majority of people like the NBA who are people of color. So, um, you know, at some point, you know, they, they, they want to draw a line and say, and say that enough's enough. And now we need to do something about it. And, you know, we are all products of our environment. We all are. And um, everybody has prejudices. I think Ed Morrow said something. We're all prejudiced. The best we can do is acknowledge that and then choose to do something about that. And not to mention that in each group there is so much diversity. Um, so diverse groups have so much diversity within them. There's a full continuum. Um, but this whole thing of racism, I mean, we've seen it. We, we, we've at times danced surrounded or ignored it or maybe minimized it or projected it or blamed it or, or if that doesn't happen here. Um, well, that's okay if you're not a person of color, but if you're a person of color, it is always there. You know, I, I always, always look at, um, from a behavior standpoint, there are times that if we look at some of the hard lessons we've learned in life, it has been something negative that's happened to us, um, and these leave imprints. Well, if you're a person of color and you experience uh, some type of racial injustice, 
and this happens every day, think of all the imprints that that leaves. So I can certainly understand uh, where athletes and like the NBA is saying, this is it. Um, this is our time to say enough is enough. Uh, we have an opportunity here. Um, we have a responsibility here. So they're just not signing something and saying racism is a public health crisis. They're choosing to put some action behind it. Um, and I applaud those efforts. And many of these players, you know, grew up in poverty and dealt with these uh, violent neighborhoods that were their own and had to deal with the racism and still would if they went home, if they weren't six foot ten and stood out. Right. Right. Um, And let's remember, you know, it's their children. It's their brothers and sisters. It's their aunts and uncles. All of these folks have experienced this. If you're a person of color, um, you certainly do understand it. I even look. Um, you know, for some of our listeners, I, I, I am um, a Mexican American, and um, I I pass often because I'm, I'm pretty light skinned But even I have experienced uh, when people find out. It, it's interesting. Um, several times that when people have found out that I am Mexican, um, they've made offensive statements. It's really kind of shocking. I, I, I had one person say, "Oh my God, I've known you for 20 years. You didn't tell me you were Mexican." And I had to stop him and say, "You know, I know this is not your intention, but your tone of your voice is kind of insulting." And he didn't stop. He couldn't help himself. Um, so these things happen. So I'm almost—it's um, probably good that we're, we have it out in the open and we're talking about it. But you can't deny that it isn't an issue. It does exist, and it exists uh, um, many times over uh, for people of color who don't pass. In our organization, since we've always been about diversity, um, we certainly have a three-hour orientation, and many companies have diversity and inclusion uh, components of their, their companies or agencies. Um, but you got to step it up a notch. I mean, even though um, we already had a thing in place that we've always been very intentional about, um, we pushed it further. We, we have developed a, a small groups. Um, we call it Evolving Together. Um, there are beliefs that we put together of, of what um, we as an agency believe. These groups meet and openly talk about it. it it's um, It's been great to be a part of it as CEO. I really uh, am a participant. I don't want to lead these groups. Actually, our staff came up with the name. Our staff came up with the um, belief systems. But it's really a, a very beautiful thing to hear people feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable um, and take risk and bring up things that they normally would not in a mixed group. So um, uh, a, a couple of things that have come up, one of, one of a, a Caucasian male had talked about how I was raised in a racist household. You know, my parents, um, his father had said uh, racist things and, um, you know, th- this, this challenged him. Um, and he openly talks about this. And uh, another person who is Caucasian female said, I'm not one to speak in groups and I feel very vulnerable, but I feel safe in this group at least to ask some questions. And, and that's where we need to go. We have to quit this divisiveness, this pointing fingers, um, this damning each other. Uh, we have to listen. We have to contribute to each other's growth and development. This movement that's happening in the sports world really is interesting because, you know, when you've got somebody like LeBron James, who is talking about, this is it, I've had enough. And you've got NBA players that are willing to sacrifice the rest of the season to try to make a statement and take a stand on this stuff. And just today, as we record, the Indians, Browns, and Cavaliers have announced an alliance to try to work together with the community to address these issues. 
there's a lot of power be, behind sports, especially if the movers and shakers in it can take it away from people. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, because we're in uh, the public light, um, I, I, it's good to see some of them step up and decide to use that to influence change in a positive direction. Um, and, and I just think all of us have to commit to that. So um, I applaud them for doing that. You know, if you get into a situation where some of the players on Alabama's football team or the Baltimore Ravens don't want to play anymore, <laughs> you've got some real dialogue starting at that point. Well, yeah, because it's impacting a lot of the stuff. And, and, and here's where I think the interesting crossover is um, sports is entertainment. And during this COVID thing, when so many people are locked up and isolated, this is a great outlet of entertainment. And now that entertainment's being pulled at a time when some people may feel like they need it the most. So what an opportunity to not only make the statement, but to have your voices be heard. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, people stay safe out there. Be kind to one another. It's a uh, we, we have to assist each other in our growth and development. It's, it's probably important more now than, than any time in my lifetime. And um, we all need to be a part of these solutions. If uh, folks want more information about your agency, Dwayne, what do they do? Hey, check us out on the web at dfyf.org or uh, call us at 614-294-2661. Okay, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.